welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Morena team, happy Wednesday. It's funny, I just assume that you are going to be picking this up on the day that it lands, pretty much as soon as it lands, which would be Wednesday morning. I am Mickey, this is Wikipedia, and we are one year into the podcast, which apparently that's quite a big deal, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have a conversation with my mate Bevan McKinnon as a sort of a one year celebration of the Wikipedia podcast, mostly because he's a good mate, he's got a lot of awesome things to say, and we love to have a good chat. Also, he is the host of the Fitter Radio podcast and anyone that has followed me from Fitter will also know that I'm the co-host of that podcast and we've been running for over seven and a half years now. And the third reason that I wanted to have Bev on is because if it wasn't for Bevan, I wouldn't have a podcast because of that opportunity that he gave to me all those years ago. So before we jump into a bit of a bio about Bevan, I just wanted to let you know that that recipe access to my website is the best way to support the podcast and I've had lots of people ask me about that. If you head over to mickeywillardin.com, the sign up page, scroll to the bottom, you will see recipe access. So for less than a coffee a week really, you get access to my recipe portal which is updated on a weekly basis, my weekly email, access to my private Facebook page and also the opportunity to pick my brain about anything nutrition related through our online messaging portal. It's a super sweet deal for you, it's awesome for me and I always appreciate your support. So Bevan. Bevan McKinnon, he's an Ironman University certified coach, triathlon New Zealand level three accredited coach, bike NZ coach, and a qualified net fit strength and conditioning coach. But he's so much more than that. He is the host of Fitter Radio podcast. As I've said, we've been around for several years and he's so well versed in how to coach an athlete, from all levels of ability, from your novice athlete right up to the elite athletes such as Braden Curry, Dr. Hannah Wells, Jocelyn McCauley. He has a wealth of experience, but he's also, he's just a decent guy as well. And he's such a laugh and super funny. So he has coached pro triathletes to multiple Ironman and 70.3 wins and has been instrumental in helping a large number of age group triathletes achieve their dream of qualifying for Kona. Vivian himself won Ironman age, his Ironman age group race in 2016. He had a stellar year actually, 2016, where he also won World Champ 70.3 and Ironman in March here in New Zealand in Topor. And we chat a little bit about that year, but so much more. We talk a lot about Bevan's background, what got him into triathlon in the first place, how he sort of transitioned from a triathlete to a pretty decent age grouper to an elite triathlete 
to then become one of New Zealand's best known coaches and what he's learned over his time within that space. And there are some definite gems in here for, for anyone interested in either triathlon, endurance sport, or being a coach yourself. Bev has a lot of uh, knowledge and shares some of that on today's podcast. So you can find Bev over on Facebook at Fitter and their website www.fitter.co.nz and same handle fitter.co.nz on Instagram as well. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Bevan McKinnon. No, do you know, it's a legit um, radio station that our friends and Alex got us onto. So we went around, we were staying with them in, uh, on our trip down last time, actually, and they've just bought, so the holiday home in Alex, yep. and they're from Dunedin. So we turn on up and they don't have Wi-Fi or anything, but they've got a wireless there and they click on the radio station and we're like, what is this? It was this random mix of music. Like you'd play Blink 182, <laughs> then you'd play Alice in Chains, and then you'd play like uh, uh, Betty Davis Eyes. And I'm like, this is a strange mix. And you're like, oh, it's Brian. It's Brian it's, FM. And it's this dude in a, in a, right, in a, like a, in a, a room shack. somewhere in Alex. Yeah, basically. Actually, um, just, Lizzie's, uh, Lizzie's ex-boyfriend, uh, Simon, the RB, the Red Baron, um, his uncle or grandfather has a, a small frequency radio station that he runs as well. Um, so, yeah, yeah. quite uh, same sort of thing. Like he's done it for years and he's got his own, like you, as a DJ, you just do whatever you like, I suppose. No idea what he plays on it. So, <laughs> Well, and the funny thing is now, so it's playing in the background here, you can't hear it. Mm. So this is our, now our default radio station barely plays any music that either of us like, but you know, how it's either Barry's playing something he really likes. I'm like, oh, it's all right. Then I'm playing something he's like, no way. So this is like this compromise. You have, <laughs> Both of us are a little bit unhappy. You've found common ground though. You have found common ground over time. Mind you, it's your m musical education has been, I think, a little bit steeper than his. I think so. <laughs> However, he is revisiting the eighties, oh. like no one else. So that's your your eighties or his eighties. That's a big difference. Oh, that's so true. Because <laughs> his will be like so echo. It's my e 80s. echo and the Bunny Man, and yours will be like uh, Led Zepp or <laughs> Whitney, Houston. Whitney Houston or something like that. This is pretty cool. Where, where did <laughs> yeah. you get onto this, this Riverside FCM? So is it a recording platform? It is a recording platform, and. Bevan, much like, you know how Chris has been the making of you, yes. Fitter Radio. She launched us, yeah. basically. Yeah. If it wasn't for Chris, we wouldn't be here yeah. on Wikipedia, yeah. actually. Similar, I would not have a podcast if it wasn't for Barry. Yeah, wow. Because obviously, you and I just, so he would just did some research and just went, let's just try this yeah, one. Yeah, okay. And I'm like. Is it a, is it a, pa it's a paid, obviously a play, paid platform? Paid platform. Yeah. And, uh, and so you can record, it's similar in like um, Zencaster that yeah, you guys yeah. used for a time, yeah. then just moved to Zoom, yeah. but you get the separate channels. You get a couple of different options with the audio, yeah, yeah, I believe. Yeah, okay, interesting. Because we were, yeah, we went off Zencaster only because the video side of it hadn't been developed as much. And then it didn't didn't really offer anything more than using Audacity and um, and literally Zoom as such, but this actually looks 
Yeah, I'm going to mention to Chris um, Riverside FM just to look into it because, yeah, it looks like you're getting the dual audio channels coming in, everything. It looks pretty, yeah, and you and it uploads to the cloud straight away. It does, actually. So post our conversation, I'll stop the um, stop the recording because yep. we are recording now because this is, this is where the gold oh. lies, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> on our pre, like where we think we're, re- we're pre, you know, like we always have the, the preamble is always way better than the actual. Uh, um, but then it'll just say, um, leave the browser open until it uploads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's just available. And then that's, even if that doesn't That's happen, why uh, I stopped using Zencaster is because uh, if it was a long conversation with someone and then uh, we both had to leave the browser open until it actually uploaded. And so there was this... Yeah. Or this this period of awkwardness if the the conversation had come to a natural end where we're looking at each other going, Oh, what do we talk about oh. now? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, good call. I can't imagine you being awkward though, Bevan. Awkward's not really no. in the uh well, makeup of No, but there's always there's, there's always that um uh period if you've had a very lengthy discussion with someone, uh generally it wasn't so much the pros and so forth, because there was always something to talk about afterwards. But if you've got someone who let's say a physiologist or a doctor of some description, <laughs> yeah. uh and then you're like, Well, thanks, um that's great, uh wonderful to come on the show and you have to have the sign off. So you say, Yeah, yeah you, you, you do know, and um you know, uh, best of luck with all your future research. Doom. Oh, hold on. Don't hang up yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why? Uh, and then it would. What about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And just, uh, boy, that COVID's a bad uh, illness, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. So, uh, Bevan, I wanted to get you on, obviously, for my one year anniversary of Wikipedia. Legit, because if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for Chris, you guys launched me to the world. <laughs> and I mean, you really did. So, anyone who's like, you. what the hell, blame Bevan and Chris. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So, uh, I just thought it would be great to jump on and have a conversation. It's funny, too, because I'd always, because um, as soon as I thought, oh, I'd like a sort of a, just a platform, because Fitter Radio is awesome, but you know, I'm just a bit of a geek around the nutrition and health stuff, which, not like, I don't want to bore the listeners on Fitter about my passion. Yep. So, I'm like, I know, we'll just go and do it myself. And uh, and I thought, oh, great, I'll get to talk to Bevan. Like, what would I talk to Bevan about? As if, you know, there's so much ground that we can cover. And what I love, actually, is that when we jump on, like, I still learn things about you just from random little snippets of conversation. I'm like, oh, my God, did that even happen? <laughs> so I figured that if I sort of get you to start right back at the beginning, I'd probably learn something today too. <laughs> Do you know, I thought about this when, we, uh, when you asked me to uh, come on your podcast. I was like, it's going to be quite interesting because we, we, we've fallen to our roles, you know, like we've, you yeah. know, um, uh, and I don't know. I dare I say it, whether we knew it consciously or we didn't know it, um, way back in the day when you and I decided to do a podcast together, we knew that we had a chemistry when we chatted about anything, um, similar senses of humour, similar passions, similar interests. Uh, and then over the years, I think we've got, well, I, I, no, look, as I say, whether we've got better at it or not, but we know exactly how to record a podcast. We, we yeah. both come in to our virtual room or whether we're in person. <laughs> um, we've got scraps of paper here and there and stuff like that. And we can just 
get it done. Um, but but yeah. this time around, it's interesting because I always, you know, we've fallen into, I'll uh, know the bones of the show and where we're going with everything. So, uh, you know, walk us through all of that and, and it sort of, you know, like the lead anchor as such. Yeah. And then you play yeah. the, the co-host there. A little sidekick. Yeah. And then it's like, and yeah, then, yeah. And then uh, I thought, oh, now we're going to change this around. So I, I can sit here <laughs> and at some point I'll go, on that note, but not quite that note, but actually on a no, complete side topic, back to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. What do you think about me? Exactly. I did wonder, actually, as I was coming uh, coming into the room, I wonder whether Bevan sent a Zoom link. I was <laughs> thinking, you know, just I, in, that, in that general sort of yeah, like... normal uh, pattern. Because that's the way we normally roll. Normal pattern, no. Yeah. But uh, no, um, uh, yes, our podcast history is uh, long and extensive, and it's been it, – it's one of the proudest things that I've ever been part of. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm exceptionally yep. proud of the work that you and I and Chris have done together and the body of work. You know, it does feel like we've produced something that – well, can last forever that has a lot of uh, interest in it. So it's been very easy for us to do what we've done uh, over the years, which has been, and it's just been nothing but awesome fun. Yeah, I know. And that's the thing. Like when we decided, when, like I was, I felt so honoured when you and Chris sort of mentioned to me that, you know, have you ever considered doing a podcast? We you do it together? Pretty sure that's how it went. Over a date scone yes. at uh, Como Street Cafe. Yeah. That was before the low carb days. <laughs> I think we were, we were just sort of, that was sort of bubbling away in the background, yeah. but we'd still not quite reached Well, that I yet. think it was, it was, it was, we'd just been moving through that period and we, knew that we and we'd done a few talks together publicly at different you know events yes. and stuff like that about a whole host of different things and we just knew that we we could you know we had a both of us feel that we enjoy uh playing a role of an educator um and, yeah. and telling an audience about different things in terms of health and fitness and so forth in a podcast seemed to be a, a fairly at the time, I thought it was a relatively simple thing. So I think so did you. And then Chris, Chris went <laughs> yeah. away and did all the work. And since then, as you mentioned, without Chris, we would be nothing. <laughs> oh, nothing at all. Like there is so much work that goes on into the background, eh? Oh, and, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Someone contacted me and went, so Mickey, you know, talk me through, like how hard is it to, to do a podcast? And I'm like, let me talk to Barry and we'll get back to you because – you know, I've got the real easy part. Yeah. All I do is get on. I research a bit about the topic area or the person because they obviously interest and inspire me. And that's the easy part that is, is that. But it's all that background. I like feel a bit guilty and, now. I, 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 in in <laughs> terms of because you and I are just playing to our strengths. You yeah. know, absolutely yeah, totally. playing to our strengths. Like I've, I oh, occasionally, if it's a really late or early morning interview that I've scheduled because of time zones with people, it becomes a little bit onerous. But it's a chance to learn more from someone that I have a genuine interest in. It's 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 purely a, a, a selfish passion. Uh, the podcast from my the the content that I've sourced over the years has just been stuff I want to find out more about. So I'll reach out to yeah. that person next minute we do an interview, and and my coaching practice has improved as a result of it. But I see Chris. Yeah then slaving away with the real nuts yes. and bolts stuff that is 
absolutely boring. And she doesn't, when she edits a podcast, doesn't actually, she has to re-listen to it afterwards because all she's doing is she's not listening to the actual content as such. She's just eliminating all the, the pauses and the, and, you know, the ums and the ahs and whatever she needs to take out, improving the quality of the audio and stuff like that. That would drive me bonkers. I'd never do it. Oh, no, because that's, <laughs> no, that's detail stuff. Kevin, have you always been that way? Have you always been the, the you just want to learn more, grow more? Like, is that something that you've always had or is it something that sort of developed over time? Like, uh, what's that like for you? Uh, I think if I have particular passion points and uh, sport and fitness has always been that one. And I think it was in... Uh, in my late 20s, early 30s, when I returned home from uh, drinking my way around Europe and uh, the typical <laughs> uh, Kiwi OE as such, that I realized I needed a career and got into the health and fitness industry. And then I think the thing that people have always said to me about uh, having no formal uh, education in that space is they're uh, quite mm. amazed with how much I know. And I don't say that Egotistically, I just have forgotten or didn't actually realize how interested I was in that particular uh, subject matter or space. Um, mm. And I have an, an antenna that goes up that seems to be able to collect uh, or you know, was always aware of conversation um, or content or information in whatever form it comes in, in and around that uh, space. And so I don't really have a very organized brain. Um, I'm not particularly mm. detail-oriented, but I do seem to be able to act, uh, act as a bit of a magnet to that, that the stuff that interests me. And from there, I find that because I'm passionate about it, I've got um, – I'm, look, I'm not stupid, uh, and because I'm very interested in it, I like to understand it, and therefore uh, that's how I teach myself is um, mm. I just stay – aware of, of conversations and content and, and information in the spaces that I'm interested in. And um, and because I'm, I think I, I do enjoy being a, a, a teacher in some regards. So coaching is teaching. Mm. Um, I do like to, to, to then, I don't know, maybe there is part of the ego that enjoys um, education in that space as well. So being able to disseminate what I've learned to other people, which is probably why I've fallen into coaching. So yeah, not detail-oriented, though. Although in saying that, though, around physiology, uh, I like uh, the science, and so I'm quite sciencey in that space. But, um, yeah, 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 not not detail-oriented, as you well know, Mixed <laughs> Yeah, I know. Did you finish high school? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, okay. uh, I would say I attended to the end of high school. Um, I yeah, finished yeah, yeah. probably two or three years earlier than that in my mind. <laughs> Whangarei. Whangarei Boys High School, yeah. Uh, so probably yeah, yeah. once I went through what was school certificate at 15 years of age, um, sixth form and seventh form uh, were just there to represent the school and the different sporting teams that I was actually part of, which was basically all of them. So, um, Okay. Yeah. And then... Where did triathlon start for you? Uh, so I was, I can tell you exactly where it started. So I had a paper round. Um, I was 13 yeah. years old at the time uh, and in, very, very active. No, uh, my grandfather had uh, was a track and field coach in athletics. And so I'd always done um, athletics, albeit I was probably better at the the. Uh, 
maybe the field events more than the track events, although I, I didn't mind the long distance stuff. Um, but I was a very active kid and uh, played a lot of very serious soccer or football and tennis and cricket uh, and table tennis and anything that I could uh, do. Mm. Uh, but I was doing my paper round, um, and it was the Northern Advocate, and I had a, a Raleigh 20 bicycle, um, and it had, uh, I can tell you, I can describe the moment. So I had uh, uh, tyres or inner tubes to the tyres that were solid rubber, So because I kept getting mm -hmm. flats, and I, that was interrupting how quickly I could get round my paper round. Um, and at mm -hmm. the end of my paper round, there was a hill that I would always have an argument with myself. Am I going to ride back up the hill today or not on my 50 kg Rally 20 bike with solid rubber wheels? And I remember delivering the last paper and seeing in the back of the paper uh, with a sports section and there was the Whangarei Triathlon was advertised. And I looked at that and I was like, oh, that's a, a one, I think it was maybe a 1500 meter swim, probably a 40k bike ride and a 10k run. And I was mm. like, mm. do you know, I reckon I could probably do that because um, I, I, I could I could swim, um, never formally, yeah. but I could swim. And so I went home and I said to my mum, I said, I, I actually want to try to do this triathlon. And she, and she oblivious to what uh, swimming in the open water actually meant, because even nowadays she's terrified even that I'm going to die. Um, yeah. And so I said about... I, writing a training program for myself because I'd learned a lot from my grandfather and I remember diligently in my A4 notebook, I would write down exactly where I ran every day, every street that I turned down. Um, I'd get up in the morning, I'd go to the local pool and I'd do a few swims. This is at 13 years of age, which I remember Mate. was quite uh, odd. Yeah. And, and, that's, and I trained for the Whangarei Triathlon and I remember doing it and swimming in I think uh, I swim in board shorts. Um, I remember just making it through 1,500 metres. 40 k's was fine. The run off the bike was horrendous. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, and that was, that was yeah, what is that, 33 years ago, <laughs> something today. So, oh, no, 37. Hang on, you've just aged yourself 37. down. <laughs> yeah, 37 yeah. years ago. So that's where I first. Right. I had. I had no idea that was your like entry point into into. I knew I'd learn something <laughs> immediately. Your grandfather being a track yes uh, yes a, a track coach, and so did he. Was he? Did he originally sort of inspire the running, the activity? Or was uh, it just because Whangarei in the seventies? Not much to yeah, do. Yeah, um, well, yes and no. I don't actually remember. I just remember being. I mean, every person who ends up doing sports competitively probably says the same thing, that you, you just were always fixated on sport. But I think uh, for me, it's a little bit like uh, I could express myself, like um, my mum and dad mm. separated when I was seven. And I think I probably of all my, the four brothers in my family, I probably took it the hardest because I was seven. Um, my younger brothers of his two below me didn't really feel the effects of it, I don't think as much. And maybe my personality and so forth, I, I invested a lot into sport and exercise through that particular period because it was probably a pretty healthy outlet for me um, being mm. um yeah, I'd probably a rather intense child as such. Mm. But yeah, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, that was that. It was just a. I, and, and look, it, I was just good. I, I was just really good yeah. at all sports, and I could pick up a, a, yeah. a. I could do a sport within two seconds of 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 trying it. And so, when you can do that, and you have success, then that becomes something that you enjoy. And so, um, yeah, yeah, that's sort of where I got into it all. Yeah, and then subsequent to that, so you were 13 then, so you know, you got through high school. 
what happened after high school? Like, how did you then get to the position where you were a professional athlete? You <laughs> like, <laughs> what did that journey Your look like? Your listenership, Mickey, if they were to dig any deeper, knows that that is a very, very <laughs> loose uh, way to refer to uh my triathlon career, but um, I never really took it seriously. I used it to keep fit for other sports because the one thing that Mm. I probably what made me uh, relatively good as an age group triathlete was the fact that I just love the process of training. I just, you, you, you and I are very similar in the fact that we don't need uh, to sign up for an event to uh, train as much as we uh, can allow ourselves to. So I, I yeah, think yeah. once I understood, well, look, I remember um, when I was playing football at about 13, 14 years of age, my my football coach said to the representative team that I was in, he sat us all down and said, I'd like you all to do what Bevan does, which is go for three or four runs a week on your own outside of <laughs> coming to practice two times a week. And all, my, yeah. all, the, people, all the other boys <laughs> just looked at me and went, what a dick. but i i I remember i've got notebooks of writing down uh as i say every street i ran down every workout i did how it felt all that kind of stuff um and yeah look i uh i just think over the years um it's the passion for training and for the enjoyment of being fit that has and and as i said i use triathlon to keep fit for all my other sports and then it wasn't until my late 20s that I actually took triathlon seriously. I'd do it in the summer occasionally because mm. I was only playing tennis or cricket and I'd be keeping fit. And there were not many races back then. I mean, there was probably three yeah. or four maybe events that you could get to over the summer and they were well, they were spread out a lot. So it wasn't like there was a real season as such. So it wasn't until my probably my, about my mid-20s that I started to maybe say triathlon was my summer sport. Yeah, okay. And so what did you do between your 20s and 30s then? Like, you came to Auckland. You no, know, drank my way through uh, the, the UK, oh. basically. So I left school. So basically, my, all my friends went to university. I got a job in an insurance uh, brokers, and that was, you know, because back in that, I mean, you, you're not far off my age, Mickey, but I'm a little bit older than you. Mm. No, Very few people went to university. A much smaller percentage of people went to university from Whangarei, Um uh, most people went out and left at 15 and either got a trade or you stayed on mm. to about 17 and then maybe tried to get into an office job at somewhere or something like that. Uh, but most of my friends, close friends, went to university and we made a bit of a pact and said, because uh, uh, we all wanted to travel. Um, and yeah. uh, I said, well, I'm I'm going to go work for th- the three years or four years it takes you guys to finish. And they said, well, when we finish – We'll all save up along the way and we'll all leave to go to, to overseas at the same time. So I left in, at 21. Um, mm-hmm. And because my grandfather was Scottish, I was able to access a longer visa to the UK than what we normally get as New Zealanders. And so I left at 21 and I think I came back eventually about 27, 28 to dry out. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, so I was away for a long time. Yeah, but still active. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of tra- uh, probably uh, only I played football overseas uh, uh, relatively seriously, but then um, I still did triathlon because when I went to the UK, it didn't take long for me to go down from living in London and I uh, met a girl and we ended up uh, 
being in a relationship for a while and I moved to Wales and then I ended up staying in Wales for the longest period of time, probably four or five years. And it just so happened by coincidence, she worked in a local leisure centre, so therefore there was a pool there. I was introduced mm. to uh, probably uh, someone who I would say is my closest mate now uh, is one of my friends, Jeff from Wales, uh, and he was into triathlon. And then all of a sudden mm. we did uh, a lot of triathlon and we had, there was a really strong scene there and in between drinking and um, going to the pub, we would uh, go out on the bikes and, and train and had a lot of fun doing it. So yeah, we did a little bit of triathlon through that particular era as well, along with, you know, what everyone does on their OE, which is mixing it in with travel and, and socializing. Yeah. I love it. And then come back to New Zealand. Yep. Were you sort of like what now, or had, did had you had did you have a sort of a a plan as to sort of how you were going to settle back into life? life? Yeah, look, I did. It was a bit of an interesting phase of my life for sure because uh, all my friends, as I say, had gone to university and were into their careers as such, and we all sort of trickled back to New Zealand at various times. Um, but mm. I was very aware of the fact that I had done. As I say, I worked in insurance coming out of high school and then uh, had done a, worked in insurance in the UK and stuff like that and thought, this sucks so much. <laughs> this is so boring. Um, I can't do this yeah. for the rest of my life. And But I was aware that personal training as a, as a career was starting to evolve a little bit. You know, you could go away and do yeah. some... Uh, qualifications that weren't, you know, the length of a university degree or anything like that and be qualified to do uh, uh, personal training. And I thought to myself, that could be me. That could definitely be me. So I came yeah. back and not long after I got back, went back into insurance to get a job, but quite quickly started to research uh, different offerings in terms of personal training and, and fitness and so forth. And it wasn't long before I got into a, an online uh, program and ended up doing, I think it was about a six-month program to do some strength and conditioning and personal training qualifications. And that that was, that was I thought, this will be me. This is where I'll, I'll end up in. I, at least I can work in health and fitness, which I know I'm actually excited about. And then that, that the next 30 years of my life will not be the most horrendous <laughs> sitting behind a desk talking about car policies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And when you started learning in that space, Bevan, did that sort of spark that fuel that we were talking about before about just wanting to know more was that when that first yeah, sort of well um in this particular space? totally because i actually realized um very early on because i'd always uh, as a as a when i was doing triathlon i was reading all the magazines like absolutely yeah. voraciously reading the magazines uh, i remember having discussions with my grandfather when i was young because he was into strength work like he was fixated with mm. strength uh methodologies for his track and field coaching um he loved watching uh reading bodybuilding magazines and the like and everything yeah. like that and so i just remember uh talking to him about training and thinking about training and what could be done better and i remember reading you know stuff about phil maffetone uh you know yeah. uh, his theories about how he had coached mark allen and i bought my first heart rate monitor when i was 25 not really knowing what it meant or how to use it so i kept in getting more and more information wherever I could around that. So by the time I got to this personal training course, I think I surprised myself at how much I already knew. Um, yeah, and yeah. That, so that meant this reinforced the fact that this was definitely the place for me because 
I knew very little about anything else in the world yeah. or life or <laughs> anything, <laughs> yeah. but I knew a fair amount more than what I had given myself credit for. And once they started the qualification, I was like, oh, geez, I don't even have to read the textbook on this. I know what that actually means. And I, as I say, it was at a quite basic level, but uh, it was definitely where I started to realise, oh, um, this is something that I love to find more about and just keep going down that path. Yeah. Now, did John Ackland, did you have John Ackland? Yes, of course book? I did. Yeah, yeah, same, yeah. mate. God, I, like I was so when I bought it, I was so like I felt like I was smarter just owning that. Book. Absolutely, I couldn't understand a thing. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely, like I still probably can't understand a thing. It is like one of those totally books, power to perform. Yeah, power to power so awesome. to perform. I think I had two of his uh, books that I'd already purchased prior to that. I did have a small library of books, so books way back in the day, man. Would you? God. Yeah, uh, it, it still <laughs> blows me away now. And and in moving recently uh, from Auckland, we had all those books there, and and they are still in the house uh, of some description oh. and not that I've turned to them in, in living memory but uh, no I yeah all that kind of stuff knew about all the the you know all the at that stage the three uh, full-time triathlon coaches in New Zealand <laughs> oh yeah now, who were they oh who, that who would, would have been, been? Steve Farrell uh, Tony O'Hagan that's right and maybe Walter Thorburn were the ones in Auckland yeah, uh, and yeah. obviously if you went to John Ackland you needed a, to mortgage your house to pay for the cost of uh, being coached <laughs> by him but uh, yeah look I mean those textbooks were were fairly groundbreaking way back in the day yeah, they were. And what about your own sort of triathlon career then, Bev? Like, was it, you know, beginning to ramp up? Because you said, you know, you were playing tennis You're and, and other sort of it, sports. You're overplaying it, Mickey. You talk about the career like, like uh, yeah, do you know what? I, I think I might be because I've got like all these race statistics in front of me. And, uh, and you've been described before as an elite. Uh, as as I know, and you know me better than yeah. that. You know me way better than that. Um, when did I uh, – so, sorry, when I first came back from the UK, because I was sort of in this state of flux and, uh, you know, starting to study and so forth and – uh, a lot of my friends, who, as I say, were trickling back to New Zealand. Some lived in Auckland, some didn't. I sort of didn't have a massive uh, friend group. My my girlfriend at the time had a lot more friends, and so I started training again. I thought, do you know what? I've always wanted to do the Ironman, and so mm. um, I started training for the Ironman and said, I'm going to do the Ironman. And this is in an era when, I don't know if, if anyone who's a triathlete out there, they may or may not know this, but New Zealand – there were only two Ironmans around, so it was either Ironman Australia or Ironman New Zealand. Um, and to qualify mm -hmm. for Ironman Australia, you actually had to qualify by finishing a half Ironman before it. Um, oh, and wow. I hadn't done a half Ironman, uh, but no, Ironman mm. New Zealand was different. You could just uh, qualify, uh, sign up and do it. So, yeah, I decided to coach myself uh, to an Ironman, and I did that. Uh, I don't remember. I remember there was a long time between drinks. Uh, I did it. And then it took me a few years to go back again because I think I was, uh, yeah, starting to get back into triathlon but not doing as many Ironmans. Uh, so, yeah, it was, I would have been like maybe 29 or 30 when I did the mm. first one. And so my mm. real serious period of triathlon training would have probably started in my early 30s where I was consistently looking at it as my main sport like this is this is actually yeah. what I did so I was relatively late 
late comer to doing to treating triathlon as my as my number one uh, sort of focus. And all the while personal training, yep. working in that health and fitness space. Yeah, yeah. And then I would, you and I would have bumped into each other. So uh, I remember I got the qualification and so forth. I never went personal training. I, I technically did. I was luckily, yeah, yeah. luckily enough, uh, I started training for the Ironman and uh, mm. went to the local pool in Takapuna and was swimming there. You would have loved this, Mickey. So I did, used to do what you did uh, when you swim. Yeah. I would get in and I would swim three yeah. times a week, three kilometres continuously. So no, oh. no, no, <laughs> yeah. no swim workout, Great. nothing. Just get in <laughs> yeah. three kilometres without stopping, yeah. uh, get out. That was, that was my workout because I was thinking you got all you got to do is get fit enough to go a few hundred meters more and you'll finish. Uh, but I remember meeting yeah. a guy and he obviously knew, could see I was training for triathlon and he was a triathlete and he had the personal training contract at that facility, which had a very small gym, but it had in the terms of, of the agreement, you could you, do any kind of training across the facility. So he had actually built a, a private swim business and a personal training business out of the facility. And he was moving to Melbourne and he said to me, you should apply for this job. I can actually shoulder tap uh, the the boss, uh, Grant mm. Schofield's uh, father-in-law. So, oh, so yeah. Prof Schofield's father-in-law was the boss of the pool. Uh, and it was a done deal. I basically just walked in, did a quick interview. He left uh, and I replaced him. And, and that's where I started working as a personal trainer. I did a little bit of personal training, but mainly I, I quickly upskilled myself on swim coaching and became a swim yep. teacher. Uh, and from there, uh, because of the connection um, uh, with the Schofields and so forth, I uh, worked there for a number of years, but when what was um, uh, Vitality Works, which is where you ended up working with Prof Schofield, uh, his mm. wife Louise Schofield and so forth. They shoulder tapped me and asked me to apply for a role as a project manager in, you know, uh, corporate wellness. And, mm. and that's the trajectory of my working yeah, career yeah. to where we first met. Yeah. Okay. So, and at that time, you, like triathlon was your thing. Yep. Like you were training, you were racing overseas as well, right? So, yeah, sort of. Like I did. Um, I think we. I remember qualifying. So I raced a lot. I, I sorry, I raced a lot of uh, New Zealand races, and I was getting a bit better. And I think the the knowledge that I took from being a personal trainer, and what I was able to do, and I coach myself, I, I've, I haven't been coached extensively in my career. I think I've done a, done probably 80% of my co of, of my preparation for tri for triathlon myself, and probably 20% with coaches. But yeah, I was I was just I remember my first Ironman. I went like 10 hours and 20 minutes, which a lot of people that's awesome. Uh, but I basically mm. it was like a four hour marathon. I basically walked the entire thing, um, but. I remember thinking every year thereafter, I would take 15 to 20 minutes off um, my time. Mm. So I started to realize once I started to get down into like the 930s and then I did a 915 that, uh, yeah. and once I did a 915, I really committed to it. And I was like, I, back in, this is back when 915 was probably the equivalent of what about a an 855 is now in, in Ironman terms. Yeah, totally. Um, that's yeah. when... New Zealand Ironman had the uh, 
uh, or Ironman in general, you could enter an Ironman and decide whether you wanted to race pro or age group. Yeah. Uh, so you didn't need a pro card or anything like that. Because when I was doing the 9.15s and times around that, we all started together, all the pros, all the age groupers at the same time. And for a couple of years, I was swimming with the second pro pack. So I'd get out of the water with the second group of pros, and I was then able to ride with that second group of pros for the full 180Ks, and then I'd fall away on the run in comparison to them. So I started to think to myself, if you can, if you can grab a, a ride with these guys over the swim and the bike, um, you may as well enter as a pro and just see see what happens. Uh, and yeah. the year the year after that, I entered with the, as a pro instead of an age grouper, and I think I did in like nine oh one or something like that. And and I I actually got ninth pro and qualified for Kona as a pro. <laughs> There you go. Was that 2000? Was it 2009 you, or 2000? Did, were you talking details before, Mickey? Because I cannot ever align dates <laughs> with performances. No, I get it. I get it. Because I've got like I've got a couple of like dates here, yeah. and uh, and oh no, wait, you raced Kona 2007. Does that sound yes, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. So so to then go back nine years later no, in 2016. No, no, no. So I would have qualified then. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, so I did it as an age grouper. Yeah, you're right. And then probably two years later, oh no, the dates are terrible with me. So I did qualify. That's right. I qualified a number of times and turned it down as an age grouper. And then I decided to go. Uh, and then I went and went, this is horrendous. This is the worst thing I've ever yeah. done in my life. So I shelved that. But I remember that prior, it was either after that, I did qualify as a, as I say, I decided to race as a pro on that one day in, in New Zealand Ironman and, and qualified and turned it down straight away because I was like, it was terrible as an age grouper. I would be an yeah. idiot to go and race this thing as a pro because I'll be the last <laughs> pro in, in Kona. So why would I go and embarrass myself like that? So I, I remember turning it down and uh, and I, I think Andrew uh, Mackay uh, from Boost Coaching in Auckland actually, he, he finished one place after me and he took it to, yeah. to go and finish last pro in Kona or yeah, somewhere. Yeah. But what a great experience. <laughs> Kona. Oh, t oh, totally. Yeah, I'd prefer to finish well down in the age groups than start in the pro race and then realise after 100 metres, oh, okay, shit. Okay. <laughs> so, so your first experience at Kona, yep. then was that enough to put you off for another however many years it took. Yes, to, it was. Because well, I, I obviously... Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. look, I, I, I must Just, admit, like, the kind of thing for me was uh, I only wanted to, do it, like, do it once. Uh, like, I'm not someone mm. who would... Uh, and I've only raced it twice. You know, like, like mm. I, I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to... I need uh, changes in stimulus. So I'm the type of person that very rarely uh, in the same week will run the same running route or, or, or ride the same yeah. long ride route. I'm constantly... I can't do out and backs. I just I just need constant mm. change. And I just didn't... I You know, I mean, cone is cone. I mean, uh, I had no idea how to prepare for the heat. Um, I probably overbiked, uh, definitely. I ended up suffering on the Queen K, as everyone does, um, and going, shit, that was incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, why would I end up... And, and I wasn't competitive at that stage in the age group, and, and uh, mm. I've 
sort of was moving towards the the thinking of well if you can't go to Kona to actually really compete in the age group would I spend fifteen thousand dollars to go back here and do mm. it year after year um so it was more from there on in I would have qualified in every New Zealand Ironman that I'd done subsequently but I but I was like well I don't see the appeal of going back there and until possibly I'm in a position to, or if I am ever good enough to actually try to go and compete for an age group uh, podium or victory or anything like that. So, yeah, it's probably more a cost thing than anything. And also it's a lot of money to pay for, uh, yeah, yeah, to, to, to Just question race. your life decisions out on the Queen K. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So what was it, Bevan, then, that sort of got you to the place where you were that athlete that was competitive, not just in terms of your own age group, but actually just overall? Like, like when did you sort of see things align and sort of come together for you? Uh, I, I just think it was a continued thirst for understanding training methods and um, mm. and applying different strategies and changing things uh, when they did or didn't work. But uh, I would also suggest that the the thing that again you and I both share is the um, love of the process and the love of the the challenge of training. And mm. I think one of my uh, probably maybe more genetic predispositions that helps with this is I can tolerate a fair amount of load and uh, I'm not a fast twitch type athlete and I think that's you know parentage more than anything and therefore it lends itself quite nicely to the ultra distance events uh, and then I think a few things um, after, as I mentioned, we, we both worked for uh, Louise and Clara Schofield uh, as contractors. At, at I was full-time. Um, we went from uh, what was health, uh, Vitality Works as a corporate wellness company, and they went through the first recession, and therefore the first thing that's cut from businesses' budgets is the wellness uh, budget. And so therefore I was made redundant from that role. And in the probably six months to a year working out what I was going to do next, uh, Chris just supported me. I was doing a little bit of coaching um, and Chris just supported me and I ended up training virtually full-time for a year and I made huge gains because I was just, I would get up and I would do a 25-hour training week, week in, week out, uh, with very little mm. racing for about a year. And then the next time I, I went to New Zealand Ironman um, as an age grouper uh, without the pro men to bike around with, I think I did another nine-hour flat Ironman and I was starting to think mm, to amazing. myself, yeah, this is I'm, – I'm actually pretty – I'm right up there now as in, as a 40-year-old athlete or whatever I was by that particular stage. Um, so, yeah, I'll start to – I'll start to take things a bit more seriously and maybe Kona's back on the agenda now. Yeah, nice. And then around that time, was that when you sort of started developing the coaching business? Yeah, I was coaching a bit uh, and, and, and it was definitely something that, uh, as I say, it was still in that era where there were bugger all coaches. I mean, nowadays, uh, yeah. as I say, if you do a massage, everyone's now a masseuse or if you receive a massage, yeah. everyone's a masseuse. So everyone, there's, the triathlon coaching landscape is completely different to what it was back then. Um, I think I, I still always lacked a little bit of confidence uh, to, to actually you know stand up and say, 
I am a tri- I am a, a professional triathlon coach. Uh, that's what I do mm. as a full time uh, occupation, and because I think people were still starting to just you know triathlon was still a relatively niche sport, and people would think, how the hell can you make a living out of doing something like that? Um, mm. But yeah, as I mentioned, Andrew Mackay uh, from Boost Coaching in Auckland and I sat down one day and said, look, why don't we? combine our uh, resources. And I think I always felt um, better working with someone as opposed to uh, doing things on my own. And so we that's where we started Fitter. And I felt I, I had more credibility with another person diving in and trying to, to do it as a full-time occupation. Uh, and we always, as I say, um, uh, triathlon was definitely starting to take off and lots of people were employing coaches and we felt that uh, you, I built enough profile potentially as an age group athlete that you might attract other age group athletes to be coached by you, uh, especially mm. if you were doing the, you were coaching yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's where it sort of started to gain a bit of momentum. I think that's really interesting what you just said that you, felt you needed someone else to, yeah. that you weren't comfortable working with yourself. Did that just come back to that lack of like the, the confidence that you didn't have at that time? Yeah, totally. I think it's, mm. um, I think you and I might be a little bit similar here. Yeah. And why we worked so well on the podcast together is that it felt like, Oh, look, we both collectively feel uh, quite com- comfortable and, and, launching this together mm. um, because, you know, it's always a, a problem shared as a problem halved. And then also it feels like uh, one, well, both of you bring extra credibility to each other for whatever reason and validate what you're about to do. Uh, and I think also because I didn't have a formal education as such uh, mm. that that people might turn around and go, I think you need to be, you know, more educated. And I think there's probably been a stigma that I've carried through my entire life is that, you know, I've, I've probably, uh, I have a lot of educated friends, um, you know, and uh, it's not that I feel inferior as such, but I think from the confidence of starting your own business and, and really stepping out and saying, I own this, you know, on my own, this is who mm. I am and this is what I have to offer. I think everyone has a little bit of that imposter syndrome in them. Um, and, but I do think it's changeable and I think it's definitely changed over the years as well. Yeah, for sure. And so you and Andrew were together for um, a small amount of time and then you just thought, actually, you know what, I've sort of got this. Yeah, and I think it's based on what I just mentioned. I think mm. um, it wasn't long before we actually gained some traction, but but I just sort of felt at the time that, that the traction was coming a lot more from what I brought to the table. Uh, and so we, we, you know, we decided to and I think I had then had enough confidence to say, hey, I think I can do this on my own. There were a whole host of opportunities being presented to our business that really only I could take up because at that stage, um, even with my personal quali- training qualification, it was more formal education that opened doors and, mm. you know, like working for uh, Vitality Works um, was, you know, it was more about my personality and the and what I could bring to the table there. And as I gained a bit of confidence from that as well, I was like, you know, people do tend to resonate with what I have to say. Um, and therefore, you've got to start to believe that that's for a reason and that people, uh, you know, they're not looking and saying, you, you don't know what you're on about. Um, yeah, yeah. They're actually really enjoying uh, how you 
convey that information or deliver that message, and therefore you've just got to be brave enough to be confident and say, hey, this is, this is what I'm going to do, and I can do this on my own. Yeah, and I think that's such a a really good thing for young young coaches coming through as well. You know, like find your voice, have confidence, yep. and don't think that you know it all. And think you know that's the that's the thing where sort of you notice in more immature, you know, yep. they, they they sort of arrive at something going sweet. I know exactly what all this is about. Like, so you're really good at that. You know, you're constantly wanting to learn and and stuff like that. But I think that confidence thing is so key. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, that was a pretty uh, crucial part of my life as to um, helping me understand uh, that at times, you know, as long as you uh, have a thirst for knowledge and, you know, you, you spend the time to understand what your the pathways that you're trying to go down um, and you also got to be able to step back and reflect on, how people react to you, uh, and mm. and not in a not in a way that validates or or, or taps you on the back to say, you know, um, you're really good at your job or anything like that. It's more just that in that moment, uh, mm. you know, are you someone that can um, convey information and can you can you can get it out to an audience, whether it's in a one on one or a group setting or something like that, and and if you feel you can do that. Um, from that education standpoint, then you, there's, there has to come a point in time where you actually go, yeah, um, I, I can do this. Uh, people believe in me and trust in me. And once you, once you accept that, um, then, mm. you know, you can be, you can do anything really. Yeah, for sure. And of course, because with the launch of the podcast as well, that like fitter changed from just being a sort of a local, national kind of yeah. like coaching business to, you know, the the world really does appear to be not your oyster, but you know, you're so much. It's so much more open to that um, sort of international yeah. environment. That that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, and and that's uh, credit to you know both of our work. To to be fair. Uh, and and you know that yourself. I mean, um, from mm. a nutrition coaching standpoint, um, we we know how many people that you've been able to connect with via the podcast as well. And I think uh, I remember being told by a sports marketing uh, guru up at AUT that we were ahead of the curve in launching a podcast. But you and I had been podcast listeners for years. We thought we were yeah. we thought we were late to late the party. To the game. <laughs> we thought we were late <laughs> to the party. Um, yeah. But we also both knew that it, it you know for the podcasts that we listen to how. It, it removes geographical constraints. So mm. whether we have just a strange accent, which you and I have been told a million times in feedback from UK listeners <laughs> or American <laughs> listeners saying we talk so slow or, what, or we can't, or some, some people have told us that they put it on double the speed from different countries because <laughs> yeah. New Zealanders have such a weird accent. But the information is the information. You know, yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, in this yeah, world sure. now, it's 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 information is unlimited, and and if you can be a a voice that appeals to people, that helps disseminate that information, then you don't have to just work within New Zealand when you have a podcast, and and that's what happened. We we knew that that's why we wanted to start it, 
Um, yeah. But we didn't realise it would be as successful as it's actually turned out to be. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, it certainly, um, yeah, serves its purpose. For sure. And I think we were really lucky as well because um, IM Talk yeah. ha- had been going for a few years. And so yep. you could see that a little podcast out of New Zealand yeah. – could be really successful, you know. So it wasn't like totally. who would listen to us? Yeah, totally. You know? And I, I'll give those guys great credit. You know, Bevan James Isles, uh, especially because he was the one that kicked it off for I Am Talk, uh, and John Newsom as the coach, uh, and he's the sidekick to John Newsom, who brings the the uh, the coaching side of it to it. But in a way, they were the impetus to say, I think I can do the same thing. But then equally so, they were for me, they were the benchmark to try to actually exceed and and whether we've done that or not is is immaterial but you know we always could see because I had something immediately to go I like that what they do here but not necessarily what they do there and then that opened yeah uh my sort of investigating and listening to other triathlon podcasts and everything else and do you know what and and it always um I don't know whether you remember this or not is my thinking was I want to do it with Mickey because she brings a completely different angle. She brings a female voice with an incredible sense of humor and a good uh, ability to have a laugh, but has the science and the nutrition side of it, which other podcasts didn't quite have at that particular time. Um, And so I was already like, we only have to get some traction here and I'm convinced this is, this is going to run. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and, and 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 ridiculously enough, we had no social media campaign behind this when we kicked it off. Yeah, no, I remember I Chris putting it up into into the into the uh, the hosting platform, and you know, a week later, uh, thirty downloads and stuff yeah, like that. That's dope. But no, no social media, nothing. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and organically, and and to this day, we really haven't as well. And it's just been able to organically grow, which is, I think, testament to the quality of the content, which I hope, and I know that we receive lots of feedback on, and that's why it's it's become the beast that it actually is today. Yeah, because it's more than a podcast, right? It's really sort of launched a whole side to, um, for me, for like the travel that I enjoy, for the legitimacy in the triathlon space that I could never have as an athlete (laughs) because I would never do a triathlon. I mean, oh no, I've done one. I've done done the special K and I've entered, you know. But, you know, like it's sort of like, oh, yeah, of course Mickey's going to be there. Oh, totally. Just to watch, you know, just to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, a lot... A lot of people have learned a hell of a lot from the nutrition conversations that you and I have had on the podcast because we're we're pretty much an open book. Uh, And I have been around the world with triathlon and have had people recognize my voice as I walk down the street talking to sound engineer Chris or someone like that and come up and said, are you even from Vita Radio, and then they'll go, where's Mickey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is Mickey? Is Mickey here as well? And they're all looking around and uh, and it's, yeah. And, and we've been at events before where you and I have been, uh, you know, where people have recognised us and it's, yeah, yeah. I always maintain that it's bizarre because this is an audio podcast with no, you know, f- you know uh, video or, f- or pictures of, of who we are or anything like that. Um, you put it up into the internet and it goes out and to the big wide uh, world and you'd have no idea where it's being drawn down from and who's actually no. listening to it. 
Um, yeah. So it's, and then, of course, you forget what you say every week. Every week. And then people come up and they're like, oh, what about this? And, yep. and you just have to sort of like smile and nod. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. It, as an aside, I spoke to an athlete today uh, or yesterday and, and asked her about a particular point uh, about metabolic metabolic flexibility that she'd actually uh, – uh, wanted to focus on and so forth. And this is a conversation that she has found from your podcast, Wikipedia, mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. she wants to then uh, factor into her thinking around nutrition for the work that she does back here with me as a coach. Uh, yeah, and, nice. and that's the effect that this um, you know information dissemination actually has where podcasts are concerned. And at times you have no idea who around the world is doing something because they heard it on Fitter Radio or they uh, heard it on Wikipedia. I know, amazing, right? Yeah, like it's a real privilege, actually. I think, yeah, for you know to have this platform to be able to influence people, hopefully in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I uh, we laugh to this day about the fact that when does this stop? Because I know, yeah, uh, uh, the 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 disappointment, the disappointment yeah. might be real. So, oh, do you know, I actually, I sort of got a bit of a pit in my stomach. Like, <laughs> I can't even imagine it. As long as there, as long as there is Wi-Fi, Bevan. Oh, there'll be a. There'll this be will a, continue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No. Yeah. Um. So if I, uh, so I don't know whether you'll answer this question, but I, I am sort of curious because it's almost like asking, you know, who's your favourite child? And I know yeah. never, no parent ever wants to answer that question, but you know. Like favorite athlete experience, not your athlete, but as a like, do you have a what's your proudest coach moment? Uh, proudest coach moment, uh, interesting. Um, it, uh, okay, uh, a couple of different things. Um, I am very proud, uh, privately of how I've made how I've tried to continue to evolve my coaching practice as best I can based on where I see sports science health and well-being um, actually trending mm. but I've always maintained that uh, and I've said this even before it became probably a more popular catchphrase that health comes before performance um, and mm. because you and I connect on both um, both you and I are very, very strong believers in health uh, and obviously about peak athletic performance. I think in trying to uh, make sure that athletes are treated individually, uh, I've had a lot of success in the female athlete space um, Mm. because I believe that there is a very big disconnect in uh, ultra-distance training and the belief that it's something that every athlete can factor into their lives without it having an adverse effect on their uh, mental or physical health. And Mm. I think um, I, even more so in recent times, am of the belief that it is not something that can simply fit into everyone's life without poor outcomes occurring. 
and working on uh, the uh, and mental health is a really big problem. Like uh, actually, you and I just recorded yesterday. And we, we literally have had an interview with uh, Jill Colangelo, who's written a, um, her master's thesis on the uh, prevalence of uh, mental health issues in ultra-distance and uh, ultra-endurance sports. And so I think maintaining health is a primary focus before performance because you can have both, but I wouldn't trade health for performance first. So I've had a mm. lot of really personally pleasing moments, whether it's actually helping uh, female athletes back to normal menstrual cycles or whether it's actually, and this is all about nothing to do with their race results. Uh, yeah, yeah. So menstrual cycle function, um, mental health uh, concerns that uh, through different connections and colleagues, I've been able to navigate athletes back towards better balance in terms of their mental health. You know, these are things about just being a, a healthy human. And, uh, and I think my fascination with the human condition is something that I always um keep front and center of what we're trying to achieve as athletes. So I think broadly speaking, uh, health being, a, uh, not trading health in um, exchange for just optimizing performance has been one of the, the key areas that I've had a lot of uh, successes in. And that's hugely pleasing for me. That's, that's incredibly satisfying. Uh, athletes, um, I, you know, look, I mean, no, it's no, uh, you know, it's no secret I love working with the pros, with the pro athletes. Uh, mm. You know, I've had a lot of success with professional athletes. Um, numerous, uh, m probably more race wins than I would care to imagine um, for a small little Kiwi coach down in this part of the world. Uh, I do remember it with great fondness, Braden Curry winning the Asia Pacific Champs in Cairns, um, where he was yeah. in a running battle with Javier Gomez and ran a 2.49.50 something to outrun Javier in that particular race. Uh, and I think the emotion at the finish line that was shared between Braden, sound engineer Chris, my partner, and myself was... Uh, yeah, was was very real um, and very touching, and I think that yeah. was yeah that was that was a pretty significant moment in his career and a validation of who he was as an athlete in the work that we'd done together. So, I mean, those are sort of the the race highlights. But there's there's t I could list of quite a few that felt like that at a finish line when a when a pro athlete achieves the goal that they've set out for themselves. So. Yeah, that's amazing because what I see with you, Bevan, is that because of your a focus on looking at the athlete holistically, I suppose you just you're then forced to get so much more involved in their life, you know. Oh, and so, tell me about and it. I wonder whether <laughs> I wonder whether you know that extra investment that's what makes you successful. But of course, it's such a giving um, a role that you have to play, and then you are. And this is, I mean, look, this will be the same for any coach I know. But it's never just about the sport. Your your relationship counselor, you play you know, best friend, you play parent, you play all of those different roles. And it's almost expected that you do sort of as well. Like yeah. almost, almost like the triathlete whisperer. <laughs> <Aren't you? laughs> well, I think that's more my personality, um, but it's, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a, a huge benefit as a coach as well, because uh, mm. I think part of me, as I mentioned, is, is fascinated with the human condition. Um, and, and I'm very much a humanitarian. So, you know, like do unto others, uh, all that mm. kind of stuff. And 
but I also believe that I can have the greatest effect by being incredibly invested in the individual and but I can't do that halfway uh, and that's mm. why I've always not um, tried to develop you know a coaching business that doesn't do anything other than bespoke personalized coaching so I only want to yeah, I need yeah. to work with an athlete I need to care about the athlete um, in some respects they need to care about me as well uh, because yeah. it can't be just a one-way street which is a very difficult thing and what is a incredibly uh, selfish and and at times requires selfishness to be an elite athlete in any sport um, mm. you know they don't necessarily become the most balanced humans uh, because it's it's a, an obsessive 24-hour, seven-day-a-week uh, fixation that they have. And so they've got to remove a lot of things out of their lives that don't actually necessarily help mould them uh, as, you know, as more balanced uh, human beings. But uh, no, I think I can, when care is at the centre of the relationship and it's a two-way uh, street, then really good things can happen um, uh, yeah. because people will respond uh, to you if they feel that they are almost making you happy and you're making their ha them happy. And that mm. helps navigate the tough times as well because there are probably as many tough times as there are, you know, successful times because, you know, sport is not linear. Um, and yeah, fitness, is, fitness is not linear. And, and, I, yeah, and, yeah. and as I say, I enjoy, I enjoy um, finding out more about how someone ticks, both physically and yeah. emotionally. Yeah. Bevan, have you got the balance right now? Like, you know, you've moved <laughs> from 2016, you know, you, you had so many great race successes there. And that was sort of like the, yep. This is a good place to sort of land. Yep. Um, to then move to full time coaching, but of course, still training. Like, have you got that balance right for you in terms of yeah. training? And and do you miss the racing? Is there any any part of you that sort of sees maybe not even Kona now, but you know, world champs twenty twenty five? I don't know. No, no, not at all. Like I um I, I actually and I probably what it informs my opinion now about the balance of ultra endurance training and um amateur athletes' lives. You know, to cut back to my own uh, amateur career, uh, I raced briefly as a pro, um, only because I turned 40. And I think I'd, uh, again, you didn't need a pro license at 40 years of age. And I think I got third at, uh, as a professional at Challenge Wanaka. I decided in the mm. 40th year of my life, I would do four Ironmans and four different continents as a bit of a coaching promotion as a professional. So, so mm. I was something like fourth in Challenge Wanaka. I think I went to uh, St. George and got ninth. I then went to Ironman career and got third as a pro, which was, that was awesome. And then I think I, uh, DNF'd at Ironman Wales with a couple of punches, which was a, an absolute pleasure to me at the time because I was completely burnt right. at, at the end of the year. That's right. I remember you telling me that. Straight yeah, to yeah. the, straight to the pub. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I, but in, the year that I finished triathlon, I won the 70.3 world champs and here in the sunny coast uh, in my age group, which was awesome. And then I went on to Kona and won the Kona 45 to 49 age group champs. And that nearly killed me. But that took yeah. one of my nine lives to win that race. And mm. I think it exhausted my 
competitive drive to do the work that's required to win age group events in the future. And and I didn't know it at the time, um, but I then had realized that my business as a coach had probably exceeded my ambitions as an as an athlete myself. And I couldn't do both because coaching yeah. is is energy out. You're giving energy yeah. all the time to your athletes. You're not asking for it. Um, you ha- you, you're providing energy to them in whatever way, shape or form they require it. This is a finite amount of energy in, in a human being's body and you can't do 25-hour training weeks and expect to be well-balanced and mm. uh, impartial in your decision-making without being fractious and irritable and tired and everything that goes along with it. So I have a number of times thought that I was going to say, oh, do an event again, and there is zero desire <laughs> to actually do it. <laughs> but then, as I say, I think it's because every single event that I ever had in my future, um, I had to call on my event motivation in in the Kona race that was the last time that I've ever uh, towed any sort of start line in anger. So um, yeah. there is only so much energy in any individual that they can give out. And, um, and I needed more for my athletes than I needed for myself. So I'm in a very yeah. good space to coach effectively now. Yeah. And I think that's another thing. So the first, you know, maybe 20 or 30 minutes ago, we talked about having the confidence to find your voice and find your feet as a coach. And I think this would be another like take home for any sort of new coach sort of coming into this space like that. You see it so often where you've got coaches that continue to race themselves, yet also try and coach. And either their car- the, the coach themselves are carrying an injury or potentially the athletes. I mean, you just you don't know what's going on, but it is just a tough ask to do both, I think. Oh, I honestly think if you are working with elites, uh, you can coach uh, – you know, you can provide a training plan. You can offer a service where they can, uh, you know, talk to you in some respects. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of critical thinking that goes on in coaching and there's a lot of uh, plannings and discussion and working out, you know, especially at an elite level where physiology and the individualization of a training program uh, and working out, you know, um, not everything and not everyone reacts the same to training. Uh, mm. And then also the emotion that goes with that. As I say, I, I'm a big believer that that with the chronic training loads required to do ultra distance endurance events like Ironman, that it does upset the brain's ability to remain in a very uh, balanced sort of homeostasis. And then when an athlete is emotional, the last thing they need uh, is a coach that's emotional because they've done the same amount of training as the athlete. Uh, and mm. clear clarity of thought is very difficult. Anyone who's done a, a 15 to 20 hour training week knows that you, like, you come home with the best intentions after training to do your work or have, you know, do something socially or, or be mm. with other people and all you want to do is sit on the couch. And it's yeah, like, yeah. well, well, how can I be effective, and how can I say that I've, I've, I've given the clarity of thought required to this particular situation, um, the best of me when I'm just a little bit rooted. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to put it how it is, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't think you can do both effectively if you're trying to be the best coach that you can, and that's only my own personal opinion. Yeah, of course. Bevan, training's always been such a big part of your life and continues to be. 
I'm trying to recall whether it was 2018 or 2019 when you pulled up with that pulmonary embolism. That's right. Talk to me about that. Like, I'm really interested to, like, did you think uh, shh, the writing's on the wall? Like, that was that a scary, was that a scary moment in ter- for you? Or we, did you, we were just like, oh, you know. Probably more Chris, uh, because Chris and I, yeah. and I think uh, it, I mean, I could be criticised for this because I'm not detail-oriented and because I don't, uh, I tend to probably think big picture. You and I are similar to this. We think, you know, big picture, yeah. you know, like we we, we give uh, Barry and Chris the job to work out how these things are going to operate. Um, yeah. And so I, uh, in flying back from the UK, did an 18-hour leg um, from the, you know, London to Doha or whatever it was, ended up... Uh, getting off the plane, having some, a little bit of uh, leg pain and then all of a sudden chest pain and back pain and, you know, I found that I had blood clots uh, on the lungs and everything that went with it. Um, I don't know. I I, I think because, you know, someone asked me the other day, uh, actually, you know, do you think you've, what what else do you want to achieve? And Mm. I actually... This, I'm really happy where I am. I'm absolutely yeah. over the moon where I am in terms of what I've been able to achieve. Like, like yeah. I don't. I still want to be better every day, but I don't have this nagging sense of not being able to have done everything that I want. Like, I know so many athletes out there just looking for that one more PB or that, and yeah. you know, one more uh, last time to Kona. last time to Kona or something like that. And and look, it is easier having had a, a lot of success as an age group athlete for sure. Like, I know I've been criticised of that in the past of being maybe a little bit, uh, I don't know, a bit au fait with whether it's uh, you know other athletes that are still striving to get back there or to qualify or whatever it is. Um, a bit more ambivalent about that kind of stuff because I have had uh, some good results. But, no, I, I sort of had the blood clots and uh, it was – Chris tries to remind me how it was more a life-and-death situation than I actually gave it credit for. And, and I suppose mm-hmm. in some respects it was, you know. They were undiagnosed for nearly, you know, probably two-plus weeks um, and they were mm. fairly sizable. But I've always, and it annoys Chris, and I know it annoys Chris, that I just am, like don't take it seriously. Because until yeah. I probably cark it and I'm in the grave, I think I'm yeah, invincible. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I'm invincible. <laughs> yeah. So I'm yeah. like, um, and maybe now at 50 years of age, I'm starting to feel the, the wear and tear a little bit in certain areas, but I still think back in my mind, it's like, well, if I need to ride six hours with Hannah tomorrow, I can do that. Um, and if I get want to jump in the pool, I can still swim with her. I can't run with her. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, we'll just put that out We'll just put that yeah, out no there way. now. But no, I think I was able to move through that. And I do believe that it was in my lifelong obsession with staying fit that I was able mm. to also recover from that. Because uh, by the specialist's own admission, when I went in six months afterwards, after being on the blood thinners and so forth, all remnants of scarring had actually improved as well, which is not typically the case um, with the, the lung damage. And I proffered the suggestion to them that maybe it was because uh, once I was allowed back to train, 
that the function of lung being stressed uh, had actually helped that scar tissue break down and then actually heal itself. And they said, look, maybe that was definitely the case. And so I'm luckily enough, I have zero uh, lingering effects from something um, that, yeah, could have been the end of me as such, but um, it wasn't. Yeah. So, no, and I, I'm able to, I've always been able to put those things behind me. I mean, Chris even now will worry about me going on another, pl- we, we, we may be due to fly shortly. She said, you're going to get aspirin. You're going you're gonna to get on the blood, <laughs> blood thinners before you fly. And I'd like, oh, I hadn't even thought about it, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, strange. Do you know what? Just as an aside, I'm pretty sure there's that that there's not a big benefit from taking aspirin for the plane. Oh, don't say that. Because uh, <laughs> I, Mickey, on lucky sound engineer, Chris is not going to edit this. Yeah, an editing <laughs> because, yeah, because yeah, yeah. she'd have been yeah. straight on to Google, Dr. Google. Um, because if I take it, Chris will be happy. <laughs> oh, that's true, actually. That's that's the placebo effect for Chris and not necessarily for you. <laughs> I'll just get up. I must admit, I, I do move much more than uh, – I always I was pretty active on a flight, but when you get an 18-hour leg from uh, from Heathrow to Doha or whatever it was, oh, you just get over it and you try to sleep yeah. too much and, and, and the like. But I'll, I'll be fine. Don't panic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no panicking here. Um, okay, Bevan. So I was actually going to ask, you know, where do you see, you know, have you achieved what you want to in your business? And it sort of sounds to me like, and I might be wrong, that because of the, the place that you're in and, and you just said you're really happy with where you're at, um, I think you've always just, you're always going to be learning. I mean, that's that's yeah. the thing. I and mean, your job puts you in that position. So I think that's quite a satisfying thing, yeah. actually. Yeah, but- I would like to, it's not that I'm after better results or a, a, a major race win or anything like that with my athletes. Um, I, I actually think as I get old uh, and uh, the, from a business perspective and from a coaching perspective, I would like to spend some time uh, just working with potentially a, a small handful of athletes uh, where yeah, yeah. a lot of what modern coaching does when you are a privately uh you know, a private enterprise like like I am and you are in business is that you, there is a certain critical mass that you need in order to make things profit, profitable. And, and mm. there's two ways you can go in this game. You either charge more and coach fewer athletes or you, you charge less and you coach a lot. Uh, and I would actually prefer to get to a point, and not for a financial uh, benefit, but I would like to spend some time working with one or two of my pros in, in the most intensive relationship that we can sustain so that I can really tick the boxes of everything that I would hope to be able to do with those athletes that sometimes the demands of coaching more athletes doesn't give you the time to do. Um, and, and just to see whether that uh, got them to a better level of performance than they've ever been before, because there is a, a tipping point. I mean, you can't – honestly, yeah. uh, I remember seeing a poll go out on Twitter not long ago uh, from some very high-level cycling coaches asking their audience, you know, how many professional or elite athletes do you think a full-time coach can successfully work with at any one time? And most of the the consensus was any more than three to six was too much. 
and and yeah, ten yeah. at an absolute stretch. But you'd need probably assistant coaches and other support staff. And and we don't. I mean, we've we've definitely grown our business to the point where we have. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Nick Gill, who's the all-black strength and conditioning coach, helping us with strength and conditioning, and Dr. Claire Badenhorst, who works as our physiologist. And we've had uh, Crystal Hockley go through Cliff's, uh, Cliff Harvey's nutrition coaching. So we've all, and we've got obviously your re, uh, intellect that we can call on as well and input. So we do have our, our small, um, you know, skill set that uh, is highly professional and highly educated that we call on. But I'd love to be able to really just drill down into that and really apply that to a few athletes just to see if that made a difference to their performance. And I think that would be mm. where I'd, I'd eventually I'd like to be in, in another couple of years where coaching's concerned. Um, and then just to see whether, you know, what, what does that happen for that athlete and, and where they can actually get to. Yeah, for sure. And is that in an environment much like um, – the sort of training camp for months at a time somewhere with yeah. these athletes, the way that you see a lot of sort of yeah. uh, the, the triathletes and runners and stuff do. Yeah, and we've been doing that for a few years anyway. Um, if you think mm, of our business, yeah. we've, we've, we're highly mobile. I think it's why we've worked with a lot of professional athletes. You know, I've done a, a lot of training camps with Braden Curry, a lot of training camps with Jocelyn McCauley, um, you know, mm. uh, in more recent times, uh, Hannah Wells, you know, this training camp, uh, COVID uh, restrictions included <laughs> yeah. is possibly going to be three, uh, maybe five to six months long, which is basically flatmates <laughs> rather than actually training camp. <laughs> but no, in that hand, and I love that hands-on day-to-day stuff. You you can use yeah. less and less data when you can yep. see more of the athlete, and we we constantly adjust sessions. We uh, you, yeah, the, the 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 technology that's out there at the moment, I think, to a certain degree, exists because of remote coaching relationships. Yeah. But when you can do it on a day to day basis with an athlete, it's it's incredibly uh, fulfilling, and um, and I think uh, you can be very. Um, quick in your decision making and very effective in what happens within each workout as well and and I and look at the end of the day it does what we all do which is travel around the world and chase the summers so totally <laughs> can't be too bad <laughs> not at all hey right, Bevan I've just got one last question to ask you which is completely unrelated, actually. Um, well, what, what should I do with my training tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that all right? Yeah, yeah. What about what, which yeah, band yeah. should I go and listen to? Um, uh, what's your favourite meal, Bevan? What is my favourite meal? Okay, favourite meal. Anything that sound engineer Chris cooks. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I say that I honestly because. She's a great cook. Training camp. Oh, absolutely. Like we're we're a very uh, tight unit uh, traveling around the world at the moment. And Chris comes with me as much as she can because she doesn't, she'll never accept this, but she is integral to me being able to do my job because she supports me in an environment that allows us. And she's a fantastic uh, foil for the you know, a bit of the ups and downs of what co- coaching and athletes go through when they're working together closely. But I, I honestly, I'm not going to tell you exactly, Emil, but Chris Cook, Chris, to anyone who's worked in uh, with us closely as athletes would probably, I, 
not disagree with me to say that anything that Chris cooks will be their next favourite meal. Yeah. Um, and quite frankly, upstairs, this is what happened, I know word of a lie, Chris literally slipped the, the uh, I think it's a keto cookbook under Hannah's nose and said, tonight, Hannah, you have to choose what meal we're going to have, mm-hmm. um, which Hannah is always reluctant to do because she feels like she's been catered for and looked after. But that's what Chris does. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's an Asian pork mince ball and lettuce oh. cup concoction. Oh, amazing. Uh, and it's like, as of tonight, Mickey, that will be my favourite meal. Yeah, <laughs> I don't <laughs> doubt it. Oh, delicious, Bevan. Well, hey, um, thanks so much for having a chat. Do you know, and oh. it's, I, do you know, I find it so funny that I actually did learn quite a bit about you from in your early years because I had no idea about the sort of the, the progression of sort of Bevan through the ages, Bevan the athlete to Bevan the personal trainer, not really, to Bevan the coach. <laughs> like, it's really interesting. <laughs> Oh, it's awesome, and I and thank you for asking me to come on the podcast. As I said to you, Mickey, I'm uh, a lot of our success as a business has come down to the podcast, and the work that you and I do together has been. As I say, I think we said to each other when we had one point. I don't know what it is now. I think we had 1.5 million downloads of our podcast over the years. I mean, that's that's uh, it's been an absolute joy. Uh, to do the work that you and I do together and, and, and long may it continue. And so um, you are part of uh, why Fitter is, it is what it is for a coaching business and a podcast as well. So I'm more than happy to come on and have a chat to you. Awesome, mate. And thank you because um, without you, this wouldn't be happening on my own platform. So, <laughs> well, thanks, you ben. you with a with a professional microphone and headphones and everything like that in front of you, I can. <laughs> Do you remember? Concur. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> I bought a Cervelo. Remember for that one race that I then pulled out of. I mean, r- ridiculous. It's just how I roll. But at least this is getting much more use than that uh, time trial book ever, bike ever got. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, All right. as I say. Um, Pleasure chatting to you, and we'll catch up for Fitter Radio next week. Awesome. All right, team. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed bringing that to you. Such a fun conversation, and you pretty much, it was like being a fly on the wall for any conversation that Bev and I will have before jumping on Fitter Radio podcast to uh, to bring you the goods there. So um, although I did learn a little bit, in fact, it was quite funny because I kept calling him an elite triathlete and you heard him. He was like, oh, come on, Mickey. I was never an elite triathlete. But, you know, that's what he's known as. And he certainly did spend some time up there competing with the best uh, during his time but not now I mean he's pretty old so you know now he's just a coach anyway I'm not sure I wonder whether he'll uh, pick me up on that so next week on the podcast guys so excited I have one of my running heroes I'm sitting down and chatting to Dina Caster who is a former Olympic marathon champ in the US an amazing runner. I followed her career when she was at the peak of it. She's been to three Olympic 
games in amongst all of her other success across the running spectrum. We have such a good conversation about mindset, about what it took for her to be the best in her running endeavors and and how she stays sort of involved now. And it was a real delight to talk to Dina. So that's next week. Until then though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can book a consultation, sign up to a number of my meal plans, which are focused on fat loss, keto longevity plan, just eating a decent diet, where you also get provided with shopping lists, access to the members only portal and Facebook group, my weekly email, and the opportunity to pick my brain about anything nutrition related. I will put those links in the show notes for you and you have a great week. Catch you next week.